In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated. This is the second of three weeks where we're taking just a moment to come up for air, remind ourselves what it is we're about primarily at worship, to walk through the liturgy and and look very carefully at at what we mean to do by the various things we say and, and the acts we engage. I said last week that we may have thought, you may have thought, that what you missed most during the season of COVID was personal contact, that face-to-face interaction with another. And the church hadn't been able to offer that. It is part of what the church offers, but not primarily. What we mean to offer first is that encounter with God, to, to, to come right up to the gates of heaven and brush up against angels' wings, because there we see what can be, what will be, and what we're asked to live out even now in these days. So, We took it from the opening leg of the journey, from house to west door to procession, on through the gospel lesson. And right there at the gospel lesson, I ended with a footnote that went something like this. Manual acts, eh, we'll pick up there next week, I said. So here we are, manual acts, eh, we're gonna start with a footnote. Manual acts, the reason I go, Eh, is because it's so important to keep the main thing, the main thing, and manual acts are not the main thing. Optional all the way across the board. But to examine the ones that are done and held onto by some in the tradition means a couple of things. One, those who embrace them will know why they do them, and those who do not will understand what the other folk think they're doing. So briefly, we're going to look at one, and there's only one that the prayer book requires, and that's the use of this. Do you remember this over here at the font? Timothy, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever, says the priest. You can't actually see what's going on when it's over here, but the priest is taking her thumb, dipping it in oil, and making the sign of the cross on the forehead had a baptism in the ocean this summer with a gentleman from Texas. He fancied himself to be a cowboy. And when he came out of the ocean, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ over ever. And he said, that's a little bit like branding. And I said, no, that's exactly like branding. That's what God's doing. The sign of the cross marked on your forehead, claiming you as God's own in that moment. An invisible tattoo, I'll say to some in the congregation, that way in which God says, forever, this one is mine. That sign of the cross, the prayer book requires, the priest can opt not to use oil. We've debated that over the centuries. But the priest may not opt to omit the sign of the cross. So what this means essentially is every time you see someone make the sign of the cross, that person is internally remembering the day they were baptized. Thanks be to God for the day I was baptized. Thank you, God, for including me in the family of Jesus. That's what's happening Now, there are spots across the liturgy where we do this. We can't address those. There's not time to do that today. But that's what that cross is all about. Let's look at briefly how that's done. Three fingers, Trinitarian in nature. 
three fingers and you touch the forehead where that mark was first made, you touch the pit of your stomach, you touch the left shoulder, if you're a Western Christian, more on that another time, the right shoulder, and then back to center. And notice, count them, one, two, three, four, five, for the one, two, three, four, five wounds of Christ. So that's part of what's all wrapped up in that in that action. Now, one other brief word, still sort of wallowing in the footnotes before we get back to the meat. Why any manual acts? Why any at all? What's going on there? I think there are three reasons one might embrace them. One, the use of manual acts punctuates the liturgy. So, it's a colon, a semicolon, it's a, it's a quotation, it's an exclamation point, a period, etc. And if the liturgy's going long, if you've gotten wrapped up in, in the Cheerios on the floor in front of you and they're slowly disappearing, if you've gotten wrapped up in some other side notice there, anticipating the next manual act keeps you moving along in the liturgy. Oh, that's right, this one's coming up next. I'm gonna, this is where I'm. So it can function to keep you moving along in the liturgy. Second, it can highlight special points in the liturgy, special notions, the sort of off, often even theological equations might be highlighted by the manual act. And finally, it reminds us that we're not doing this by ourselves. The Christian endeavor is not a, something that you get to do because you are you. We're doing this together. Not even Christ Church. Christ Church doesn't get to do this because Christ Church is Christ Church. Rather, we're doing this with Christians around the world and throughout time, and we're embracing acts that universally had been, had been embraced in other places and other times. End of footnote. Back to the meat. Gospel lesson. We're seated, seated for instruction. The sermon comes. You know, we could have a whole, a whole session on the sermon, but just a couple of things to say about this. In an ideal world, the sermon gets out of the way of the gospel. In an ideal world, the sermon means to highlight the words of Scripture in a way that they are as scandalous to the people today as they were in the first hearing of first-century Christians. I read an obituary of a priest this past summer in which a bit of the homily was, uh, was excerpted, and the priest who had died apparently used this particular metaphor for the work of a priest frequently, often re recounted it. If you remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was separated in the temple from the rest by a curtain, and at the moment of Jesus' death, that curtain is ripped in two, the idea there being that all now have access to the holiest of moments because of Jesus' death. And the priest said, it was the, this priest who had died, it was, he had often taught that it was the priest's role, in some sense, to lead the people up to the Holy of Holies, up to the torn curtain, and then to get lost in the folds of the curtain. A sermon is, in some ways, similar. Never the story, but the gospel is remembered. One more thing uh, to say about sermons. Uh, a good sermon is made by a good congregation. A congregation that challenges the preacher. Nice, forgive me, 
nice sermon preacher is sometimes to be sort of damned with faint praise. What did you mean when you said this? Or, I've never heard that before, that doesn't sound right. Or, I was really challenged by this word. Could you say more about that? Good preaching comes from a congregation that listens well and challenges well. I encourage you along those lines. Next item, creed. Very important. Creed. We believe, this is not a personal affirmation of faith. It's not an I believe. That's what distinguishes Nicene Creed from Apostles' Creed. We believe is the faith of the church. Do you struggle with some aspect of the creed's assertion? I hope you do. Do you struggle today with the same assertions of the creed that you struggled with when you were 12 years old? I hope you don't. The recitation of the creed, like recitations of prayers from a prayer book, they in some sense become the backdrop, even backdrop and fabric of your life, unfolding, and your relationship to those words will change as you grow and change. Again, so much more could be said, but I want to focus on one more word before we leave the creed. Believe. As Western, post-enlightenment, generally pretty smart Christians, we've assigned to that word a, a, a notion kind of like this. Belief means to give assent, mental assent, to a certain set of propositions. These are empirically true or not. But the word believe comes to us from the German word belieben. Everybody say that with me. Belieben. One more time. Belieben. German speakers, I love it. <laughs> believe, you can hear it, can't you? Believe comes from belieben. You know what that German word belieben means? To cherish. So when you say we believe, it's not that you're first giving mental assent to a certain set of propositions. You are saying, we cherish God the Father who made us. We cherish God the Son who saved us. We cherish God the Holy Spirit who is in an ongoing way redeeming us. That, that to me, puts the creed in a whole different place. It's something we do together. Prayers. Remember, Shemaimon talked about the journey to the, to the gates of heaven begins as your foot leaves the bed and hits the ground and moves from bedroom to kitchen to car to west door. Remember we talked about that? And that ad and that movement right there, there were two things you were doing among others as you prepared for worship. You were gathering up the prayers you were going to offer and gathering up those sins for which you would ask forgiveness, those sins and petitions you'd lay before the throne of God. This is the first place you get to, you get to, begin to recite those, those uh, petitions that you have been collecting together as you move from bed to car. If you'd grab your prayer book very briefly, I just want us to look shortly at the summary that precedes the prayers of the people. You'll find it on page 359. There are six forms in the prayer book, right, too, that we can use to, to pray with, but every now and then you'll come in and there's another form up there and you think, I've never heard that one before. Uh, what gives them the right? You know, or, or where did that come from? 
or why today and not last Sunday, or why not next Sunday? The, 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 the secret sauce, in some sense, is right there, 359. It's those italicized words right there in the middle of the page that enumerate the things for which we must pray. When we come together and pray for the life of the world, we're going to pray for the church and its mission. We're going to pray for the nation and all in authority. We're going to pray for the general welfare of the world, the concerns of the local community, for all who suffer and are in trouble, and for the faithful departed. You're praying for the faithful departed, not just remembering them. A personal anecdote, when I, when I experienced a, sort of a moment of conversion personally, coming along the way around this prayers for the faithful departed, that is realizing we're doing more than just remembering them. We've got work we're doing for the faithful departed. When I realized that's what we're about as historic Christians, I started in the back of my prayer book a list of those close to me, mostly family members, who had died. Now, that was in my 20s, and that list has gotten fairly long now. But in the moment when there's silence for the faithful departed, or even perhaps as the petition is going, I'm saying quietly, St. Sylvester, Patrick, Mario, Ed, Christine, Boo, Agnes. And those, the longer they get us, as you move towards the end of the list, you get more and more sort of emotional because those are the freshest. But you're doing work for them right then. You're laying them before the throne of God continually. Yeah, prayers of the people. From prayers of the people to confession, that's the second part of what we're doing there, uh, picking up from our movement from bedroom to car to west door. We're naming in the silence the sins for which we are being asked forgiveness. You'll note the priest stands, often makes the sign of the cross as absolution is declared or absolution given. Think of that Protestant-minded, Catholic-minded umbrella. Absolution is given for the Catholic-minded. Uh, forgiveness is declared for the Protestant-minded, same words. But this action is a very important one. Many of us in seminary are encouraged to make the sign of the cross over the people as absolution is given and over yourself to make sure that it's clear we're walking together subject to the same judgment, the same mercy, the same forgiveness. Last piece, the peace. We stand, and then we, the peace is extended. The prayer book gives us another option. There's one other place that we could exchange the peace. We do this sometimes at Breaking Bread at 6, but in my years at Christ Church, we've not done it. Uh, we've not done it here. If you look here, anybody know that place, by the way? Where the prayer book suggests? Right after, momentarily, right after Madeline breaks the bread, we sing the fraction anthem, we gather the, the elements up, and she holds it before us and says, the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you, feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. The peace could come there. And I name this because it helps make clear the role of the peace. God asks that we be reconciled to one another, brother to brother, sister to sister, mother to daughter, father to son, that we be reconciled to one another as we come to receive his body and blood. And when you say the peace right there, and you extend the peace to your enemy across the way, right before you come forward, there's a little less time to sin. <laughs> Just a little less time. A little less time to see that Easter bonnet in front of you that's blocking your view, and you're saying, why today? 
or a little less time when the crumb crunchers in front of you are mashing up the Cheerios and you're saying, why today pay attention? A little less time. But we, we instead, we use it kind of for half time right there. And we'll pick up there next week. I've said these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.